Arthur Alexander was a member of the Poppies from New York, one of the earliest skinny tie bands emulating the Beatles and the British Invasion, going back to 1973, and one of the first bands signed to Bomp Records. After the Poppies, Alexander formed a band called Sorrows and created one of the greatest power pop albums of all time, Teenage Heartbreak, released by Pavilion Records, a subsidiary of CBS, in 1980. As you will hear during this conversation I had with Arthur, the Sorrows' second album turned into a disaster and derailed the band's career. And even though a third album was recorded, it has yet to be released. Let's hear Arthur's story. So I have to say, uh, Teenage Heartbreak is one of definitely one of my top ten, top five probably favorite power pop records. So, um, well, thank you, thank you so much. Yeah, but of course, you know, you go back to the Poppies. So I would love to hear about how the Poppies came together, how you, why you played that kind of music at that time. As far as the Poppies go, the if the question is why did we play that kind of music at that time, well. I don't know exactly. I mean, I don't think there was any particular reason for that except for just simply the love for this music. Truth be told, you know, I can't really take a full credit for the choices and why I, you know, I sort of fell into it in a sense that at that time I was looking for, you know, I in all kinds of bands trying to put things together myself and so and whatnot and I basically uh, kind of fell into it by uh, answering an ad in the Village Voice at the time. There were these two guys, that there was there was this ad looking for a guitar player who was into the Beatles. And, you know, I was a, I've always been a Stone Cold Beatles fan, so, you know, needless to say that, you know, that really uh, resonated with me. So um, when I responded to the ad and I went to uh, get together with these two guys, which was Patty and Bobby at the time, they were writing these songs and that's what they were and like they 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 had this whole concept of really kind of coming in on not only on on that kind of a mercy beat type of a sound but a very early on which is something that i really liked that's basically what they what what they wanted to kind of like come in on and and stay with and um you know, I really liked what they were doing. You know, the vocals were great. They were writing really great songs at the time. You know, sure, a lot of them reminded me of, you know, like, let's say, uh, All My Loving played backwards, but just the same. <laughs> they were just great songs all, all, all on their own. So I joined the band, and um, that's the stuff That's the stuff that we were kind of homing in on and, and, and um, cultivating. And the songs that they were writing, I, at that point, we were basically just playing the songs that, that the two of them were writing. 
I have not yet contributed anything writing-wise to the band. But the whole sound and the arrangements were, were like that. And people were really responding to that. You know, we, we, we of course, we try to put our own spin on it, you know. and uh, But stylistically, you know, we kind of like sound-wise and in, in terms of the writing and arrangements, you know, we kind of stayed in that vein. So that, that, that was the reason why the party sounded the way they did. Needless to say, you know, people responded to it in a very nice way, and, you know, they were very responsive to it, and people really liked what we were doing, which was kind of also, I guess, part of this blowback from all the stuff that was happening around at the time, which kind of gave the, gave the foundation to, you know, to the whole punk new wave movement that was happening, even though at the time we didn't even actually know. We were kind of insulated from it until we kind of fell into this whole Manhattan, CBGB, Max's Kansas City scene, you know, we basically stayed out, you know, we, we played, you know, outer boroughs of Manhattan, of New York, you know, Long Island, Queens, Bronx, that and the other thing. So we really were not, at the early stages, we really were not a part of it, even though we were already playing that kind of music. And needless to say, it all got kind of galvanized and solidified once we became part of the scene. And at some point, Greg Shaw becomes a big fan right from bomp records yeah there's a there's a really cool story connected to that that i like to that i like to tell which is you know we made this we made this actually we made, we made a couple of demos which went nowhere and then um at some point basically patty our bass player and i made a demo in my house on my on my reel to reel that was my first production job you know, we made this. We made this demo, just him and me doing all the, you know, overdubs and everything else. You know, bouncing from track to track. You know, doing the, uh, doing that kind of a thing. Anyway, we made this demo, and I was shopping it around, and I knocked on the doors of every freaking label you can imagine, and everybody turned us down. One of the meetings that I had, I managed to somehow get into to the office of Greg Geller, who went on to become quite a famous producer in A&R man on his own, but at that time, he was with Epic Records. Somehow I got into his office and I played him the tape, and he's sitting there behind his desk listening to the tape. You know, this, these were the days where you could actually get into someone's office and have him listen to it. And so he's sitting behind the desk and listening to this tape and bopping his head, and he says, man, I love it. I would have signed you right here on the spot. But I got bad news for you. I just signed the Hollies, and my budget is blown for a year, for the for the rest of the year. So I can't do anything. <laughs> so you know, I said, well, that's <laughs> if I'm being bumped because you signed the Hollies, you know, that's that that's the best rejection I've ever got in my life. <laughs> right. But he, yeah. So he says, but yeah, you know, I tell you what, you know, there's this guy on the West Coast. His name is Greg Shaw, and he puts out this hoop at the bump, uh, bump magazine, you know, and, and uh, he just started a new label called Bump Records, and he this this stuff is just like right up his sleeve. So why don't you write to him? You know, this was before emails. So why don't you write to him and, and send him a tape and tell him I sent you? And, and you know, I think he will really respond to it, and I'm sure he's looking for artists because he's just starting a label. So I sent the tape to, to Greg, you know, along with the letter. And a few weeks later, I get this call from Greg. You know, he says, 
she loved it. She wants to sign us. This is the greatest thing he's heard in the longest time. And before you know it, you know, he was flying back back east and we were in the studio recording the first single. And we, were, we became, I think, pretty much the first new unsigned artist to Bomb Records. He already had Flaming Groovies, but they were not, they were already signed before. So as far as the new unsigned artists, well, you know, the Pappies became the first signing to Bomb Records. And as they say, the rest is history. Yeah, I have the I have the issue of Bomp Magazine from 1978 where he basically first talks about power pop as a genre, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. so he kind of he's the one who kind of took that term and applied it to all of these bands that were happening. And obviously, you guys were one of the first bands. You were an early band, and you know one of the early bands that he got him excited about what was happening because it seems like you know yeah. it seems like 70s rock. The tempos had kind of slowed down. Everything was more distorted and heavy. And, you know, at in the mid-70s here, you start having these bands that are a throwback to the 60s. And then, of course, yeah. you know, the new wave and punk and everything develops out of that. Right. And it's all more about garage rock, you know, and 60s up-tempo, pop, very melodic. And uh-huh. yeah, and you guys were right at the forefront of that. I mean, there was like you were probably big fans of maybe Badfinger and the Raspberries and stuff. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah we I mean, our record came out in '75. Yeah, you know, that's that was basically our approach, you know, which I've cultivated ever since. You know, to me, song is king. You yeah. know, and so, so we really concentrated on, on, you know, having really good songs with melodic hooks, harmonies and stuff like that. Those were the those were the things we loved from you know, from the sixties and we were unapologetic about it, you know, and needless to say, at the same time we were affected by what was going around, especially once we started playing the whole New York City scene, by, you know, a bit more aggressive approach to it and stuff like that. But at its essence, you know, there's no question about it. We were like right back to the 60s, except with maybe more of a kick to it and the power, which is where you got the power pop from. You couldn't have avoided having had some influence from what happened in like the first half of the 70s. So you've got, you're a throwback to the 60s, but things have also developed further. You know, people have, so you have different inspirations and influences. And so it's just kind of, I mean, I think, in my opinion, most of the late 70s, early 80s power pop music, I like more than the original 60s music. I think because it's better melodies, more diverse, you know. A lot of '60s right. stuff sounds dated, more dated now than the. Right. the so, right. it's interesting to. Well, but were you I, guys? I, what you guys were doing was it kind of rebellious at the time? Like, 
almost like alternative oh, yeah. music. Like you're the alternative to Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin, right? Yeah, you know, I, I, as I like to say, it took balls to do that at the time when we did it. Yeah. Know? When when everybody was into that kind of stuff, all of a sudden comes this band, you know, and they like, on on the one hand, they're like throwback to the, you know, to the decade before, and on the other hand, they're kicking ass like nobody's business. And, um, you know, kind of insist on a certain quality of music and, and, and a certain sound that's completely unlike anything that you're hearing on a radio or all the way around and not like being part of the, you know, the general record industry bandwagon. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And then you watch as, you know, what you're doing kind of takes over, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. It was, it, it was it, it was really funny because, you know, one one of the things that was definitely happening with, with the puppies at the time is that because of the way we were and how we played and what we played, we certainly were never part of the kind of a media darlings of the scene. You know, kind of like you know, Heartbreakers or Ramones, you know, band, bands like that. You know, glam, come punk rockers because we were kind of clean looking, you know, not, not, not dangerous enough to be embraced by this, by, by this whole thing. And at the same time, every single freaking time the puppies played CBGB and Max's, Joey Ramon was there. The heartbreakers were there. The blondie was there just watching us like a hawk. Right. We showed up wearing, you know, wearing winkle pickers and skinny ties and this and that. Next time they play, I see velvet colors all over the place, wiggle pickers, skinny ties. You know, I don't have the film trademark to prove it, but I remember what happened. You know, so it, it was kind of funny that while we were never invited or embraced by the whole hip downtown rock and roll scene as such, all these bands that have been really, really liked us, you know, and, and, and really, uh, in some way we inspired them and, you know, they, they took that and they, they made it their own, but I know where it came from. Right. Well, yeah, the, you know? I mean, the skinny tie thing has become a cliche applied to yeah. all these bands and you were probably, yeah. you were definitely one of the first, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, it's like, Every time, every time I see or hear people, you know, comparing sorrows or puppies, you know, to the to the, you know, riding the coattails of the knack, I just I just laugh. Right. You know. I mean. <laughs> yeah. First of all, we preceded them by like about two or three, four years. I don't know exactly what it was. Well, they just cracked yeah. the market. They had that huge hit record, and then yeah. it was like now all the labels want to find the next knack. It was the same thing that happened right. in the '90s with Nirvana. You know. Yeah. 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 So when the poppies split up, you get two great bands out of it. Uh, the boyfriends didn't do a whole lot; they had a couple singles. Uh, but you know, you formed the Sorrows, and you get signed to Epic, right? Sorrows, without the there, by the way. Right. Uh, we're, we're signed to uh, yeah Epic Associated Labels, you know, to Pavilion Records here. We were on on CBS. We had a good shot, you know. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't get as far as we could have. For, for a multitude of reasons, but uh, we certainly, we, you know, f for a band, for a band that, you know, that, uh, again, for the same reasons, w was never made, you know, 
front and center of the whole New York City scene, even though we made quite an impact anyway. For a band like that, you know, considering all these other bands that were vying for the same thing and, you know, even till, till this day are, you know, kind of worshipped like in a, in a cult-like way, just about, you know, like Heartbreakers or Ramones and stuff like that. But there were, you know, Ramones obviously made made their impact, but there were a lot of other bands who didn't accomplish anything close to what Sorrows accomplished. So, you know, sometimes when I when I reflect back on those times, you know, I can say, you know, I always say to myself, well, you know, you have two choices. You can be kind of bitter about it because you didn't make it, quote unquote. But on the other hand, look at what you did accomplish. And, and what you've accomplished is probably about 99.9% more than all the bands that start with something and never even get anywhere near to how far you've gone. So, you know, I'm happy with that. Yeah, I think, yeah, you should be. I'm, I'm cool with that. I'm cool with that, you know. How did you get together with Joey Cola? How did how did the band form? Well, after after I left uh, uh, the Poppies, I started Sorrows, and there was what I what I like to call Sorrows Mark One. So I got together with these uh, with these three guys, and we you know we rehearsed, we started playing around, but somehow. I just didn't feel like things were gelling, so I kind of disbanded that band. Did some soul searching. I, you know, I went to Europe, spent some time over there. Went to England, where I kind of saw what was going on there at the time, and came up with this. You know, I mean, I had this concept kind of like loosely in my head before, but it really became crystallized. Well, like what it is that I wanted to do, kind of like the vision for the band that I had. So when I came back. I decided to start putting the band together again, and it just so happened that Jed Harris, who was with me in the Poppies, uh, you know, the drummer from the Poppies, had, you know, he, he, he also left the band. Actually, he left, Jed left before me, you know, and joined with Wayne County for a while, and the Backstreet Boys, he was with them for, for a short spell. Okay. And then he was playing with this other band called the Pirates, not to be confused with the Pirates from the UK. And, that band fell apart just at the, just as I was starting to reform Sorrows. So I called Jen and I said, I'm putting together this new band. Would you like to be a part of it since, you know, you're in between the bands? And Jed said to me, what, what, what is it going to be like? What, what's, what's the deal with this? And I said, well, like what I'm hearing is, if you can imagine that, think about Sex Pistols meets ABBA. <laughs> and there was, and there was this silence on the phone for a while, and I said, uh-oh. And I kind of like said, hello, are you still there? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, yeah, yeah, I am. Well, by the way, I'm in. <laughs> and and that was the start. So Jed, Jed and I got together at first. There were just two of us, and we were rehearsing up, and he's, uh, he had a basement in, his, in a house where he lived up in the Bronx, and we were rehearsing there, just two of us working on, on, on my songs. And, you know, we did the usual that you did back then. You know, we put the word out that we're looking for a guitar player and a bass player, you know, on the scene. And we put the ads in the Village Voice like everybody else did. And, you know, all these people would show up and I knew exactly what I was looking for. I mean, I knew exactly what I was looking for. And all these people were coming and going, you know. I mean, it got to the point, you know, it's, it's 
I don't know if you have, if I don't know if you're a musician or if you're ever in a band and went through the suffering of auditioning people, which can be a really brutal exercise. Yeah. It it got to the point it got to the point when some guys came for the audition, I just looked at them and I knew they weren't the right ones, you know, or just the way the guy picked up the guitar and started tuning. <laughs> I got to the point where it says, you know what, I don't think this is you're the right fit. So we went through a you know, a multitude of people and then, you know, Joey showed up. He didn't very much look the part either, but I kind of so past that and like literally within the first song we were jamming on something or whatever it was and I and I already knew that's the guy and you know then I started showing him some of my material and you know I could see he was a real quick study and really good singer and everything else he looked like shit but you know I knew we could, <laughs> we could work we, we could we could work on that you know <laughs> I think I, you know, he he came down with this with this ugly ass guitar, and with, I think he had a beard at the time. Mm. And I said to him, "Well, w- would you mind shaving that beard and and like getting a decent looking guitar and like playing about I don't know, twenty inches, holding it twenty inches lower than you're holding it now?" <laughs> <laughs> and, and he said, "Yeah." So I said, "Fuck yeah, you're in." <laughs> So that so that, so that was now now we were three, and then you know so we still needed a bass player and that was really really tough. We went again through a myriad of people you know a lot of mercenaries and 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 you know people who just kind of like wanted to play in six different bands to see who gets there faster, and you know who would have none of that you know so we were looking for the right guy and and we had a really tough time so we started playing without the bass player, just kind of going through the revolving door of various friends and, and, and bass players who either were just simply helping us or they didn't last very long. They just didn't didn't have the right stuff. So that's how Joey got in. And it, it I think it took us, I think I would say, good two, three years to actually find Ricky, who was not even living in New York. We, you know, we met him on one of the gigs in... in, in uh, up in Washington DC in Bethesda. Yeah. So that's how we that's how we hooked up with Joey. That's great. Did anyone else come through the that audition process that ended up going on to, you know, become well known or famous or anything? Uh no. No, okay. <laughs> not a single not a single one that I'm aware of. No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny how you say Joey yeah. looked like shit because he's like a little pretty boy <laughs> once the album comes yeah, out. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's, that's, that's exactly, that, that was exactly my point when I said I could see past through it. Yeah. Because because I saw a really cool, handsome-looking guy. You know, I, I just knew he would be the hot drop of the band. Yeah. And he had a really good commercial voice, you know. And my vision for the band has always been from the get-go. I was not just looking for a guitar player. I was, I was, you know, even though I was a singer in a band, what I wanted to have, in difference to what was typically going on at that time anyway, my vision of the band was to have not one, not two, but three lead singers so that all the front guys, well, Chet was already a foregone conclusion because that guy couldn't carry a note if it had handles on it. <laughs> so I knew that that was a lost cause as far as singing goes, but the idea was to have three lead singers 
once everything is get, once everything comes together, and Joey most certainly fit that bill. In fact, you know, when it comes to when it comes down to it, if you really wanted to kind of grade it, I think till now that Joey was the best singer in the band as singers go. But the idea was to have three different lead singers so that we would not have the same guy like in many other bands. I wanted I wanted to have that variety of sound and uh, and, and diversity. So when 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 he showed when he showed up. Even though like, he looked like shit and everything <laughs> else, I saw right past through it because the guy was, you know, I could tell that the guy is a great guitar player. In fact, you know, after working, after having worked with him, I'm willing to go out on a limb and say, as far as I'm concerned, he's one of the best and the most underrated guitar players out there, yeah, bar none. I mean, the guy is just fantastic. So, I mean, I could see all this and I could see past, you know, he kind of like, I think at the time when he showed up for this audition, I think he was kind of like into this whole, I don't know, Almond Brothers, Grateful Dead shit or whatever. Like, you know, like, I don't mean that, you know, in a, in a disparaging way, but image-wise and, and everything else-wise, musically even at that point, he definitely had the same roots and the same sensibilities as we had. But in terms of musical focus, you know, he could not be further away from Jed and I at that moment. Mm-hmm. But I could clearly see that given that focus, he would fit right in. So, you know, to quote our famous president, I moved on him like a bitch. <laughs> Even though it sounds like he was wearing that guitar like a necklace, right? I'm <laughs> <laughs> sorry, what? It sounds like he was wearing the guitar like a necklace. You said he wanted him to drop it down 20 inches, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no. That, that, that was definitely, that was definitely, uh, I, I, I knew, like I said, I'm telling you, we started jamming on something, you know, I don't know, some Chuck Berry song or something, you know, that we all knew and could just get together on. And then I, I think I started showing him bad times, good times. Yeah. And he picked that up, and like in no time at all. So we started playing through it, and like halfway through that song, I looked at Jed. Jed looked at me, and I just said, "That's the guy." Sorrows is definitely more aggressive, faster, more aggressive than the poppies were. More, um, yeah, well, that, more that, attitude. That was the, yeah, that was that was the evolution 
that was the evolution I went through. And in, in fact, it already started with, with, with the puppies and what, what kind of broke up the band is that the band is just, was just not developing and growing in the way that I envisioned myself in. And when they did, I just didn't like the direction that they were going because, you know, as I like to say, you know, when I joined the band, you know, trying to live up to the standard of the Beatles is one thing, but when they, when they turn into like heartbreakers wannabes, you know, that's when I said, that's where I get off, you know, I mean, if you want me to live up to Johnny Thunders with whom I, you know, with whom I'm having a beer every night at CBGB, well, that's not what I'm going after. So, as this was going on, you know, I really, that's where the whole vision for sorrow started crystallizing in my head. I felt the need and this is what I wanted to do. It's just like, I love the energy and the aggression of the Sex Pistols, but at the same time, ABBA was like, I was a complete ABBA freak at that point. To me, they were just, at that stage, I loved their music, I loved their harmonies, the, mo the melodies, and you know, that combined with, you know, my love for the 60s and 50s music, you know, kind of came in my head of putting together the aggressive, the aggression, and 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 the uh, the energy of those bands that, that were happening on the scene, but at the same time maintaining the you know the melodiousness and and, and the songwriting of the bands and artists that I admired, and fusing the two, which is how the whole concept of you know Sex Pistols meets ABBA came about, you know. I could have said Sex, Sex Pistols meets the Beatles, except that ABBA was like really front and center at the time and kind of represented that aspect of music that I really, that was really important to me and that I love so much. So that's why I guess ABBA popped into my head. So when I said that to Jet, you know, that was probably what was behind it. But yeah, that's, that's the extension of the Poppy's legacy that, that I, that I took, which is, keep writing the songs that you can actually listen to and hum and remember, but at the same time, kind of modernize the sound to reflect the time, you know, to reflect the time and what I liked about the other stuff. What I liked about a lot of stuff that was going on was that aggression and energy. What I didn't like is that most of the songs were crap, you know, and, and that to me was a critical thing to put together, which is to make sure that I'm playing the songs that I think are really good, backed by the backed by that sound, and all that melded together. Yeah. Yeah, there's no denying the brilliance of the songwriting in ABBA and also the arrangements. The, the yeah, I mean, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. What, what, absolutely. What do you think of, of the term power pop? What do you think of that term and applying it to like this group of bands from that time period? Well, I think I I, I think that the ter the term is actually you know quite good, and if if I got my history straight or if that's even true, I think it was actually Pete Townsend that came up with this term yeah. way before Greg. Oh. But you know, without getting into who said what and when, yeah, I I, I think it's pretty pretty descriptive because because it kind of if you really think about it, in a sense, it equates to what I said about my vision for sorrows, which is Sex Pistols meets ABBA, which means power, that's the Sex Pistols part, 
and ABBA, which is pop. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? So yeah. if you really think about it, even though people don't use that term very much anymore, you know, but when it all started, you know, people talk about rock and roll as if, you know, as if it was some kind of a separate thing from all the rest of what is essentially and what was always referred to as pop music, which is a short for popular music. So rock and roll was nothing nothing else but part of that same genre of music, popular music, as opposed to classical music, let's say, or as opposed to jazz. Okay? Mm-hmm. Fabian and Bobby Rydell were pop music. Frank Sinatra was pop music. Elvis was pop music. Eddie Cochran was pop music. They just happened to be playing. Chuck Berry was pop music. All that stuff was pop music, except the term rock and roll kind of like took over to differentiate, I guess, to differentiate itself from, you know, what came before and emphasize the the rock part of it. But it's all pop, you know, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, anyway. So t- t- that's that's what pop power pop means to me. Again, going back to songwriting and stuff like that, what power pop doesn't mean to me is... Like, like I very often say, you know, these days with with power pop, you know, just because you have a Vox amplifier and a Rickenbacker hanging from your shoulder doesn't make you a pop, you know, power pop band if you don't have the songs. Yeah. You know, just just because you have the accoutrements to, you know, that that usually are associated with the genre, you know, doesn't doesn't make it doesn't make it for a good music. Yeah. So and and that to me is also what is very much. I would say lacking in in a lot of the so-called power pop stuff that I hear even these days, you know. It sounds like it because it does have a certain sound to it, but just because you have a a jangly 12-string Rickenbacker, you know, barking at you from the speaker, but the song sucks. Well, you must have been happy with how the record Teenage Heartbreak turned out, right? Because it sounds great. It's a a killer record that that you know can stand up against any other album from that era yes, in my thank opinion. You. Yes, I you know we well there there's two aspects to it. I love the I love the record came out. I love the way we recorded it. I I never liked the way the record was mixed or mastered. I don't you know, I did at, at that point I didn't know enough about it to know what or what or what happened and why it happened, but it just it just didn't sound like what we left when I left the studio, what I heard on a record, it did, it it didn't it didn't match, you know. It just it just didn't have that sound that I heard in my head. But you know, all things considered, you know that, that's that's why when you know when the reissue that I did for for Bump Records, you know, the yeah, Bad Times Good Times record, mm-hmm. which is essentially a, a, a reissue of Teenage Heartbreak. I mean, I'm going to skip all the insane technical details that I had to jump through to make it sound the way it does. It sounds to me infinitely superior to, you know, to to what the album sounds like, which unfortunately is the only thing that's left of that version because there were no, well, so so the label claims that they they, they don't they lost the multi-track masters from that album, so then nothing else could be done except for what I did, but. I still consider that an accomplishment, and I I don't know if you if you have that album. Yeah, I do. Uh, yeah, to me, you know, let's just say it sounds it sounds infinitely better, or let's put it this way: it's as good as it's possibly gonna ever get. Because 
apparently multi-tracks are lost. But yeah, I mean, all things considered, if I had to just simply say yes or no, it's definitely a, a, an album that endured the time and it's aged well. And I'm extremely, extremely proud of it. Yeah. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. time we had, we had an absolute blast making it and it just sounded it just sounded great you know like i said I'm, you know it, it was funny you know like i remember when the record came out just to make you understand what i'm talking about i remember driving in a car and teenage heartbreak was on the radio and i was needless to say shitting my pants from you know just ecstatic you know and and everything but one thing that i couldn't help notice is that it just sounded very to my ears it just sounded very tinny compared to everything else that you know that, that that came before and that followed on the radio, and I couldn't understand why. It just didn't have that punch and that fullness that you know, like let's say they would play teenage heartbreak, and after that they would play something by Squeeze or The Pretenders or 
something. And those records to me just sounded so much fuller and so much punchier. And by comparison to me, our record sounded kind of like tiny or tinny, you know. Mm -hmm. And I could not understand why, you know, like, yeah, if you crank it up to warp 11, it sounded great. But, you know, when you crank anything to warp 11, it sounds great. So that, that was my that was my big beef with that record. Other than that, I you know I'm proud of it as a, as one can possibly be. There's no question about it. Well, like I think the song "Teenage Heartbreak" itself is a perfect example of a power pop song. Like uh, the whole way it's arranged and put together, it's it's very yep. up tempo. It's punchy. It's got the great little guitar lick, yep. like melodic guitar lick. You know, it's got a great yep. verse killer chorus you know just everything i mean it's a it's a perfect power pop song it's one of the best for sure like it's one of my favorites it's one that i would play for anybody you know to yeah. to show them what power pop means to me at least you know right i agree you know <laughs> if i don't mind me saying so i agree yeah <laughs> well do you remember writing it and was it a lot of work and, oh, yeah. and arranging it and putting it together you know it's it seems like a lot of work went into it uh, absolutely, you know, the, I, I, yeah, I, I most definitely still remember writing it, and and um, the chords coming to my head, the melody line, those little riffs, you know, and stuff like that, and putting it together. But uh, it all kind of came, you know, as, as I remember it, it, it all kind of came pretty effortlessly, you know, just kind of like it was almost like a stream of consciousness, you know, like I had this part and I had that part. And I didn't have that middle bridge part, you know, so like, okay, what do I do there? What do I do there? You know, and like, try this, try that. Oh, boom, there it is. Done. You know, and uh, I was just filling in the blanks as I go. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like with every song, you know, when I think I, I wrote it just as the first version of Sorrows was starting. So we already played it, you know, so like with every song, it went through some modifications and everything else. But I have to say, by the time I brought the song to the band, it was pretty much finished down to the last detail, you know, some arrangement things like, okay, let's stop here. Well, no, let's not stop here and let's do this, let's do that. But in terms of the actual melody structure, the guitar hooks that you hear on a record, all that stuff was, was pretty much all in place by the time I ever brought the song to the band. Yeah. even writing as we were recording you know she she comes and goes is one example of that all i gotta say is another one i remember actually sitting on the piano at the piano in a studio and writing all i gotta say oh you gotta say you know right there finishing it up and the same thing with um, she comes and goes when we had it that middle section you know with the girl singing 
was actually much shorter. And our producers at the time said, Arthur, you know, can you expand that section? Because we feel like it's too short. So I started writing and writing and writing, and it just became what it what it became. All that was happening while we were already in 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 in, in the process of recording the album, and then uh, our producers had this idea. It's just like, what do, what would you think if we if we did like the, a girl group thing in the middle of it? Sort of, you know, since the whole song is about this this girl who's idolizing this rock star, you know, on stage and everything else. What if we, you know, and the lyrics kind of go go that way too? What would you think if we had like a like a girl group, you know, kind of like have the Shirelles in the middle of it singing that part? And I said, what a great idea! And that's how that came to pass. She wakes up in the morning, makes up a face in a bed. Five dress on, it's looking kind of sad. We see you take a bus, get lost in the crowd. People running all around, no one's talking loud. There goes another day, she sees them come and go. Her life never changes, if it did, she would know. She's got no one to turn to, everybody knows. Just comes and goes She's been working hard all week Yeah, and now she's rushing back home Another Friday night and soon She won't be all alone We see the spiky shoes A red lips black tight Makes it down to see Every Friday night Standing right by the stage And Johnny Blue takes the lead All the girls go insane She cries at Johnny, it's me The music gets louder No one hears and no one knows She just comes and goes you get to work with Shell Talmy on that on Love Too Late. So that was that a very different process making the second record? Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how shall I how shall I approach this? Well, at the very least to say that it was a whole different process would be an understatement of the year. If I had to, if I had to use one word to describe it, it would be probably a clusterfuck. Right. Yeah. That's basically that's basically what that turned into. And if I had to describe that record, all I can say is that while I will never understand what happened and why it happened that our records never even got released on a CD format once that format took over from vinyl at the time. You know, it's like I could never understand that. Like everybody and their mother. I mean, the bands that never, I never even heard of made made it on some kind of a compilation or 
got re-released on, on, on the CD and this and that. For some reason, our records never came out on a CD. But the silver lining to this is that, thank God, because <laughs> if, I, if, if I could, I would buy every copy of Love Too Late on eBay and then have a nice bonfire here. <laughs> yeah, well... I mean, I will say it's not as good as the first album, but what is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I do. What enjoy, is, I, 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 I tell you, mm-hmm. I'll tell you what is, what is, it's this album. If it was done the way it was supposed right. to have been done. Right. And, uh, it just so happens. It just so happens that you're about to hear it in a near, in a very near future. Really? Yeah. So it's, do you have so you have the the ma- the uh the the tapes for that one? Or did you re-record? Well, here is the ironic part, you know, I'm I'm kind of trying trying to kind of keep keep short on the details cuz when mm-hmm. the time comes that's when I'm going to start dishing the shit out with a shovel. Mm-hmm. But let, let let's let's just say that, you know, the ironic ironic part is that we actually have the the the, the multi track masters for it, and the ironic part is that it was just unusable. Oh, really? So, no. So, well, let's start with the fact that it would be nice if the, if it was Soros that actually played on it. But, oh, uh, really? It Shell brought in ringers. Yeah. Wow. Well, let me give you let me give you let me give you a hint. As it stands right now, at least the working the working title for the album is "Love Too Late," the real album. Right. That should that should, that should give you a hint of what's behind it. But yeah, I mean, you know, without sounding too mysterious or anything, yeah, this what's about to come out is the is the real album as it should have been, with everybody on it. With the you know, the only person that's not on it is Jet, who's quit since retired. So. It's it's a different drummer. It's actually the drummer that that's been playing with Soros ever since we kind of like that reactivator on the Bad Times Good Times release, and has been playing with us ever since. And he's also playing with me and my you know, Arthur Alexander band. So he he's doing the drumming, but Ricky's on it. I'm on it. Joey's on it. And so it's basically Soros album as it should have been. It's not uh, some hodgepodge clusterfuck of whatever that thing came out to be. Right. <laughs> yeah. I guess I guess you're I guess you're sensing I don't have the greatest love for this thing. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. No, ser- seriously, I mean the only thing I can say about this thing that in spite of their be- best efforts which is what speaks to the quality of this, of the songs themselves, the only thing that survived that album is the songs. Yeah. Cuz they still they still in spite of what they did with it, or I should say, what they did to it, they still they they still shine through. True. So. Yeah, I mean, but, the, the yeah. problems with it are how it sounds, I guess, in the mix and things like that, right? Well, no, I mean that that that's to me that that was the that, that was the the least problem with with that record. You know, how it sounds is 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 one thing, but it's not us. Yeah. It's not sorrows. It's faith, you know. Basically, is the best way I can put it. To me, this is not sorrows. 
you know, it, it's, it's kind of funny because, and I have to be ready for it as well, I'm sure for people maybe like you or for people who actually have the original, who kind of like grew up on it, it may very well be that when they hear this release, they'll still say, yeah, that's nice, but I still prefer the, the other ones. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, the original, which is, which is quite fine, you know, if not quite normal, you know, if, if they still prefer the original, great. Well, if you have it, enjoy it, and that's it. But to me, that record is like having an illegitimate child, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> my, my mission, and God knows it took me 40 years to get to this point, uh, was to preserve our legacy as a band and to, and, and to give the world the record, you know, the, when I say the world, I don't know, you know, how many people even care, but it was, but it was important to me so that this record was what it was meant to be and never was, which is us as a band delivering this album with the vision that we had, not what you got, you know, which is kind of like, I don't know, Fleetwood Mac and Doobie Brothers got together and made some hodgepodge of stuff and here it is. Well, how did you end up with Shell as the producer? Well, that was that was <laughs> that was that was kind of ironic because at the time, you know, when we were getting ready for the second album, you know, we we were considering various producers and I was talking to, you know, to our label and and their attorneys and and the attorney that was actually representing the label had a lot of producer clients, so I actually, uh, he was working with, you know, I actually asked if, I asked, I actually asked for Jeff Lynn, who, who was one of his clients and whatever, he was busy or something. Then, then I said, how about Dave Edmonds? Same thing, you know, something happened or whatever, or he, he couldn't or wouldn't or whatever. And then he said, how about this? And he pulled out a cassette out of his desk and played it for me, and I just about freaking lost it. It was fucking great. I said, what is this? And he said, this is a demo that of Small Faces. Would you, would you be interested in Shell Tommy? And I almost lost it. I mean, Shell Tommy, the guy who produced The Who, The Kings. I mean, you know, this was like having an audience with, the God, with God right. to us. Right. You know? and, and the album just sounded absolutely, I mean, the album, the, the demo tape just sounded like so freaking rowdy and just so energetic. I mean, like real rock and roll. So I said, yeah, fuck yeah, absolutely. Call him. So, you know, that's how that came to be. And unfortunately, it didn't, it didn't turn out to be what it, what it was, what, what we envisioned. Let's just say, it, it turns out that the reality is not always what you thought. Yeah. One of the greatest lessons that I learned out of this thing is that, you know, we all as musicians and bands, we have this notion of, you know, like, oh man, if we could only get such and such to produce our album, man, that would be, that would be the shit, you know? No, <laughs> that's not the shit. You are the shit. Yeah. They're, they can only make you as good as you are to begin with. They can also make you worse than you are, which is exactly what happened here, but... I'm just, my point being is that we as musicians and bands and stuff like that have this vision that these producer people, they have like this magic wand, you know, like whatever it is that you're doing, they're going to just make it absolutely magical. Completely sidestepping the fact that 
if you are a good band, then you are in fact producing yourself. They are there to enhance what you've already had. Well, in this case, he actually destroyed what we had, but the, the point still remains that the producers are not what they're cracked up to be. It's not like getting the guy that you admire and, and worship the ground he walks on is the be-all, end-all, and, and the answer to your prayers. I'm just wondering if Shell was, was he... Was he trying, did he think he was trying to make a hit record? Did he think he was trying to satisfy the record label? Or was it just, was he just a control freak? I mean, what was the... All of the above. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Really, seriously, all of the above. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that, you know, knowing knowing what I know now about pro- producing and, and the whole record, uh, record production end of things, I hate to say this, he is not a good producer. Yeah. And it may sound and it may sound like a total blasphemy, but also knowing what I know now about what went down, which I didn't know at the time, but had I known that, things probably would also have gotten quite a bit, you know, it went down the different different path. But just knowing from working with him and what he had done in a studio with us and how he works and everything else, I can tell you that that whole myth, you know, when you think Shell Tommy produced my generation, I mean, geez, you really got me. No, he didn't produce that. He was in a studio. Right. He was clever enough and smart enough to, to see their talent and sign them and make the records happen. Right. Which is quite different from having this perception like people tend to think like produced by, insert the name there, is equivocal to he made that record. No, he didn't make that record. The Who made that record. The Kings made that record. Okay? Yeah, it wasn't That's... Shell who cut the cone on Dave's amp or whatever he did to get that sound, right? <laughs> so Right, you know, he, he yeah, he, he was there and he was smart enough to see these guys for what they were and, and get them signed and make the whole thing happen. But that is a long way away from saying he made that record and it is the way it is thanks to him. You know, in other words, people equate right. the producer's name with what they're listening to. Well, I'm, I'm sorry that you had that experience with, uh, with the second record. Well, but... you know, you know, I, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, as, as much as I'd like to, as, as, like, as much as I, you know, I would love to feel victimized and, and bemoan the whole thing. You know, the truth is, we were just one. We were just one of so many bands that this happened to. You know, yeah. I really can't take credit and, and and put myself on a pedestal saying, "Oh, you know, we're we're the only martyrs in in, in this thing." No, we're not. There were the, the, these things were happening and still are happening to this day, probably on a daily basis. You know, it just it just happened to us. Unfortunately, unfortunately, it for all intents and purposes, it set the course of the band on a death spiral from that point on. Yeah, that's unfortunate, but you know, yeah, it happened. You know. Well, so was it a but situation it, where you there there could have been a third Sorrows album for the label, but you broke up, or did you get dropped by the label, or how did that work? No, no. I mean, you know, like like I said, this this album created. I mean, it triggered a whole chain of events that basically led to us being dropped by the label, or let's put it this way: we and you know. 
we ended up in a no-win scenario. The result of this label was that we had an album that the band wanted nothing to do with, okay? Yeah. So when you, when you have that kind of a situation, you know, where we're essentially, you know, we did what we thought we were supposed to do. We were very naive also, you know. I said, okay, we'll get this album out, you know. We'll go out and promote it our way. To give you to give you an example, okay, Joey Joey is the only person that sings on this album, okay. Actually, he's not the only person. There's there's a song on it which not even any of us is singing on it. Well, Joey's singing the middle part, but there's a song that some studio hack is actually singing. So that's not even us at all. <laughs> what song okay? is that? Breaking my heart. Wow, that's crazy. So, yeah. that we said was you can you can you know you i remember we had a label meeting the, the record just came back from mastering in la and we had a label meeting you know in new york and they're playing us this record and i'm just sitting there and as you can imagine the look on my face was not exactly uh <laughs> you know ecstatic and you know we're talking and and the lawyer for the label you know jumps at me and says well so what do you want me to do with this you know you want me to put it on a shelf or what what and i just looked at him and i said well, I think that would have been a good question to ask me before you, before you did what you did, 
not now. Yeah. And now that it's here, you know, I don't care what you do with it, run with it, you know, whatever. But know that we're going right back to being sorrows. And that means people who were supposed to sing given songs are going to be singing this song. So basically you ended up with a band that sounds nothing like the album. And the album that the band wants nothing to do with. So, so the song, you tell me. The song Breaking My Heart has none of the band members on it at all except Joey singing like background vocals is that well you know you know I don't I, well first of all yeah no no Joey Joey sings you know when I wrote when I wrote the song I always I always had it in mind this was a song that Ricky and Joey were supposed to sing we did that quite a few times where we like shared the songs mm -hmm. you know where Let's say verses were one guy and the bridge was another guy, and that sort of stuff. So this was a song I specifically wrote for Ricky and Joey. So Joey sings the part that he was supposed to sing. I don't know who plays what because one week into those sessions, I actually left mm -hmm. and never showed up again. After I, once I realized what's going on, I just basically left the sessions. Mm -hmm. So I don't even know who plays what other than some studio hacks and some. And I know it's not Ricky singing that thing because Ricky doesn't sing like this. And we couldn't, uh, we couldn't even sing like this if we wanted to. So here is here is one of your perfect examples of what I'm talking about, about, about a producer producing a band and coming up with a song that the band can't even reproduce proper because none of us sings like the guy who's singing the verses, you know. Situations like I just described led to the point where the band was basically, well, for lack of better word, dropped by the label. Personnel problems started, you know, and uh, before you know it, you know, there's, there were different people in the band and the band to me just wasn't the same anymore. And at some point in time, you know, I just said enough is enough. And I just broke the band up and went about, went about my own business. On a, on, a, on a bright side, before the band broke up, we actually recorded a third album, which never came out and it's still in a can. And that's the next one in line after this one. Comes really? Out. Yeah, and wow. that's going to be good. Yeah, which it, it's, it's a really, I mean, we were just so sick and tired of the whole experience. We actually went back to Media Sound where we, re, where we did uh, the uh, Teenage Heartbreak and literally set up the mics in the main studio A and just let her rip. We did like 14 songs in, the, in one night and just recorded it all live. And then, you know, we did some vocal overdubs after that, you know, punched things up, you know, if there was a mistake or something. It's a really great record. It's a really great record, and I can't wait to get that out. I kind of tend to, you know, I kind of tend to think of, for better or for worse, I kind of like to think of it in linear fashion. So the thing is, you know, I could probably have released that album years ago if I wanted to. Of course, we didn't have the wherewithal and or you know the tools and the way things are right now to release it if I wanted to. But I could have if I wanted. I just kind of had it in my head for some stupid reason that I wanted to do this sequentially as things happened, which was really important to me for reasons I, I can't even understand, but that's how it was. So it was really important to me to re-release Love Too Late as the album that it should have been, and then release the last one, the one that's still in the can. So that's still in the works, and I think you're going to really like it when it comes out. I can't wait to hear it. Do you know what the third album's called? Does it have a name? It actually, it actually did have the name at the time. I, I wrote this song dedicated to Mr. Shell Tommy, <laughs> and it was called, and it's called Nevermind. 
Mm-hmm. Cool. If you can get, if you can get this. So the album title was Nevermind at the time, but then you know, I think it, the Nirvana came with Nevermind and the Sex Pistols oh, yeah, yeah, had yeah, right. pull ups. You know, so I I don't know if it's a, if it's such a good idea to keep that name as the title of the album. But that was a, that was the working title at the time when we recorded it, which was like in '84, I think, or something like that. But I can't wait to start working on it. It really, it really kicks ass. Awesome! You know, yeah, I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, yeah no, it's 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 really, really good. It's really, really good. That's where things are right now. appreciate you talking to me and uh oh you're very welcome you're very welcome my pleasure and you know like i said you know teenage heartbreak i mean one of the one of my favorite albums ever so <laughs> you know thank you
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 